Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. And for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Let me pray again as we come to God's word. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that as we uh, come under it this evening, that you would teach us. Be our teacher. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Exhort us. And God, help me be faithful to this word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was glad when... Dot, dot, dot. Take a few moments and just and think in your minds. How would you answer that? How would you fill in the blank? I was glad when... Well, I remember distinctly the excitement and joy, and I mean a kind of manifest joy, a verbal shout, a jumping up and down, and and the word here, even in the psalm, is that kind of joy that is expressed, gladness that is manifest, that is seen. Well, I remember distinctly the excitement and joy I felt when my parents told me at 12 years old, let's go to Disney this summer. And in the words of the psalm, it would go something like this. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of Walt Disney. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Orlando. Orlando built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the families go up, as was decreed for them to give thanks to the name of Walt Disney. There, attractions for amusement were set, the attractions of the house of Mickey. Pray for the peace of Orlando. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your boundaries and prosperity within your palaces. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of Walt Disney, I will seek your good. Now, at one level, of course, such an analogy is just silly. It's ridiculous. But at another level, comparing it to the more mundane helps us get an overall sense of what the psalm is actually communicating, especially the relationship between one, the gladness of the psalmist at the prospect of going to the temple in verses 1 and 2, two, the description of the glory of Jerusalem in verses 3 to 5, and three, prayer for Jerusalem in verses 6 to 9. So just as Disney is kind of the focal point of Orlando, so also the temple The house of the Lord is the focal point of Jerusalem. And one interesting literary feature within the psalm itself that that brings this out is the fact that references to the temple, the house of the Lord, are at the beginning and end of the psalm in verse 1 and verse 9. And they're framing this adoration for Jerusalem that comes in the middle. So ultimately, the psalmist is... Glad because 
He knows the joy of being at the house of the Lord. And then such joy compels him to pray for the city in which that house stands and to enjoin others to pray with him. In other words, getting a whole sense, a big idea of the psalm here, to continue enjoying the presence and blessing of the Lord at his house in years to come depends on the ongoing peace and security of Jerusalem, the city that it is in. That's the big idea. But I want to sharpen it further and bring it home to us. And so I'm going to state it as an exhortation for us. And here's here's what it is. Delight yourself in the Lord and pray earnestly for His people. That's what this psalm is saying to us tonight. Delight yourself in the Lord and pray for His people. Now, if you were listening carefully, you should pause and you should ask, wait a minute, the psalm is talking about the temple and Jerusalem. So how did you get from there to the Lord and his people? Shouldn't it rather be something like delight yourself in God's house and pray for Jerusalem? In that case, we might liken attending God's house being glad at the prospect of going to God's house in the psalm, we might liken that to, say, attending church on Sundays. And we might understand praying for Jerusalem to mean praying for present-day Jerusalem. In fact, when uh, my wife and I were in Jerusalem about eight years ago, uh, we walked the ramparts, uh, walked around the city, praying for the peace of Jerusalem. With this psalm, as one of the main impetuses for such action. But is that all this psalm is saying? Now, I certainly think that it's right, good, (laughs) to be thrilled about attending church. I, I hope you're glad to be here tonight. That's a good thing. As Spurgeon says, nothing better can happen to men and their friends than to love the place where God's honor dwelleth. Amen to that. But you may be here and you're not exactly glad to be here. You you might be here for some other reason. And if that's you, then my prayer for you is that by the end of our service tonight, though you weren't glad at the prospect of coming, you will be glad when you leave. And you will say, It was good to be in the house of the Lord with his people. So I think it's right to be thrilled about attending church, if that's the way we were to interpret this. Love church. Yes, that's good. And I also think that it's right to pray for peace in present-day Jerusalem. Nothing wrong with that at all. That's a good thing. I just don't think that way of applying the psalm quite gets to the heart of the psalm. Rather, I'm suggesting it's delight yourself in the Lord and pray earnestly for his people. That, I think, is the burden of this psalm for us at this point in redemptive history. But I need to show you how I got there. So, how did I get there? Well, on the basis of the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture, 
And because we are Christians reading this psalm, the first thing we need to grasp is the reality of the multiple horizons, if you will, of Jerusalem and the temple in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. Both words and the realities to which they point function in a variety of ways in the Bible, and we need to trace those out. Basically, we need to see how they function in the light of all Scripture as we move forward in the storyline of the Bible. So there are four horizons. Horizon number one. Our psalm itself is a great example of this horizon. The first and most common meaning of Jerusalem and the temple. That is, the literal city in the land of Israel in which the physical structure of the temple stood. Notice again the language of our psalm. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And then immediately he says, our feet have been standing within your gates. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem built as a city. It's clear from this psalm that by Jerusalem, the psalmist means earthly Jerusalem in the land of Israel, the city. And it's clear by his reference to the house of the Lord that he means the temple. Jerusalem is one of the oldest cities in the world. Founded somewhere, I read, between 5,000 and 6,000 years ago. It depends on how you kind of do some of the archaeology. And it's most well-known, of course, for being the home of the temple. This magnificent structure and the meaning of it. Even pagans recognize the exalted status of Jerusalem. Here's one example. Pliny the Elder writing in the middle of the first century A.D., describes it as by far the most renowned city of the ancient East. Now that's certainly in part due to the magnanimity of the temple and the significance of it, but it's also, I think, due to the reputation of the city down through the years as we read about it, its history in the Old Testament. Things like this. Jerusalem is the holy city. Isaiah 52.1. Jerusalem is the center of the nations. Ezekiel 5.5. Perhaps more familiar to us, Jerusalem is the Lord's sanctuary. Many texts, Ezekiel 5.11 is one example. Now in addition to the presence of the temple, which is kind of the most significant thing about Jerusalem, The psalmist in our psalm chooses to highlight three more features of this Jerusalem in verses 3 through 5. And we'll just look at them real quickly here. First, verse 3. Verse 3 notes that at least by the time of the building of the first temple, it was built in a compact way. The ESV translates this here as bound firmly together, compacted closely together in the sense that it's... uh, Fortified, seemingly impregnable. The psalmist is celebrating the construction of the city. Second, verse 4, the psalmist is celebrating the fact that by God's choice or by God's decree, which you can read about in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and other places, the place of unified worship for Israel is Jerusalem. You can see that in the language of the tribes go up there, the tribes of the Lord. They go up together to give thanks 
to the name of the Lord. They go at appointed times all together, coming from their separate individual places, coming together at appointed times to worship the Lord together. So there's this sense of when we're in Jerusalem, we're together in worship of the Lord, all together as his people. And then third, in verse 5, the psalmist notes that it's also the place where judgment, thrones for judgment, were. In other words, it's the place where justice is administered by the royal and messianic line of David, no less. It's the place of justice. This, these three things, and of course then the temple as the supreme peace of Jerusalem, this is the glory of Jerusalem. And the psalmist is just celebrating. He's gushing in this psalm over Jerusalem. But contextually in the psalm, we might, we might be tempted to think it's all about the city. But contextually, the way that the psalm flows and the way that it's structured, I, I don't think that's quite the case. What really is going on is that the glory of Jerusalem here in the middle of the psalm becomes the foundation for both the psalmist's delight, the gladness of the psalmist in verses 1 and 2, finally arriving at the temple in Jerusalem, having been sovereignly kept on his journey, as Pastor Dan Hibben uh, exposited for us so well last week. The Lord is your keeper. He will keep you. He will keep your going out and coming in. The psalmist is journeying. And now in our psalm, we're, we've arrived. We're here. And he's been kept. So contextually, Jerusalem, because the temple's there, it's the foundation of the psalmist's gladness. It's also the foundation for the psalmist's admonition to the people and his own example of praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I think that's how the structure of the psalm works. And that meaning of Jerusalem and of the temple is the first horizon. The first reference, if you will, of Jerusalem and the temple. But then something extremely significant happens, as you know, with the coming of Jesus. A further horizon of meaning for Jerusalem and the temple comes into play. So turn to the book of John. We're going we're gonna to go a few different places together. I want you to see these texts for yourselves. So turn to the book of John. While you're turning there, just remember Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4. There he says to her that a time is coming and is now here when neither in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will people worship the Father. What? What a shocking thing to say, especially in light of what we just read in Psalm 122. What are you talking about? Jerusalem is the place where the tribes, they go up to worship the Lord together. And here Jesus is saying, a time is coming, well, and the time is here when neither in Samaria nor in Jerusalem will people worship the Father. Rather, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. How can he say this? How can this be? We'll come to find out as we get more revelation, as we move from Old Testament to New Testament and we get the full 
picture of what's going on. The temple and the city of Jerusalem in which it stood was a pointer all along to a greater temple and a greater city to come. So look at John 1.14 with me for a second. A well-known verse. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. This is temple language. The Word that was in the beginning with God, the Word that was God, this Word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. Temple language. The presence of God, once uniquely located in Israel's temple, now dwells in Jesus Christ. And this explains why in John 2, he can say to the religious leaders, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And of course, the religious leaders are flummoxed. It's like, what is this guy talking about? No way. Except John tells us that he was talking about his body. Because he is the temple. Indeed, as Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, something greater than the temple is here. Greater than the temple. In other words, what once was a journey to the temple in Jerusalem is now a journey to Jesus by faith from anywhere and for everyone. Whosoever will, come. Just let that sink in. We've got to let this sink in. Any pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the hopes of obtaining some kind of blessing or, or meeting with God apart from knowing, believing, delighting in Jesus means absolutely nothing. Indeed, any attempted journey to God that does not arrive at Jesus, one way to say it, or go through Jesus, another way to say it, is in vain. For he is the true temple, the true dwelling place of God, in whom, Paul says, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and therefore has, as Calvin says, furnished us with matter of more abundant joy. More abundant joy. Jesus, the true temple, alone has the words of eternal life. The presence of God, the peace of God, the justice of God are all found in Jesus. True fellowship with God, true peace, true justice are found in Him. And they are experienced truly now in part, and will be known in full when he comes again. And here's the amazing thing. He died for you so that you might know him in all his glory and experience the fullness of his joy and peace and perfect justice. That's why he became flesh. The Son of Man, as we've heard a couple weeks ago, came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So just putting that in our context here, we're thinking about temple language. Jesus comes. God comes in flesh. He tabernacles among us so that he might die. So that you might know the fullness of his joy and peace and justice. That's amazing. That's the gospel. And so that's the second horizon. Jesus himself is the true temple. Moving on to horizon three, and it, it just, it's not more amazing. You don't get more amazing than the gospel, but this is like another level of stunning, I think. It's the fact that this temple language extends even further beyond the second horizon of of Jesus as the true temple, namely to all the people of Jesus, the church. Both in a corporate sense and in an individual sense. So now turn to 1 Corinthians with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start with the corporate sense. Again, what we're doing here is just tracing throughout the Bible how language about Jerusalem and language about the temple is developed in order to help us as Christians, this side of the cross, at this point in redemptive history, properly interpret Psalm 122 in its fullness. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, notice verses 16 and 17. Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's what? temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, the yous in those verses are all plural, so in English, you kind of have to say y'all, right? That's, that's what's going on here. It's y'all together as the body of Christ, as the church, you all together are the temple. The church together is God's temple. That's just stunning. God by His Spirit dwells in the church. But it goes further still. Go just a bit further ahead to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. And now Paul individualizes it. Notice verses 19 and 20. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So not just the church corporately, all together, but also each Christian individually is a temple a temple of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I think we just, we just need to pause and let the reality of such claims, such truth, just really sink in. It's so easy for this kind of stuff just to become uh, Christianese, a sort of jargon we've all heard, we've used a hundred times before, but it, it's devoid of any real, present significance for us in our lives. We are 
individually, every believer, and corporately together, the church, we are the temple of God. Bring everything you know about the glory of God's presence in the temple in Jerusalem. Bring all that with you as you ponder the fact that as a believer, you are God's temple. As the church together, we are God's temple in Christ, the true temple. My, how this transforms the way we read a psalm like Psalm 122. Indeed, the whole Old Testament. And that's kind of the point. Jesus says, it all was pointing to me. Now there are so many, uh, I'm tempted to just go into great detail here, but I know time is, is running on us. But there are so many moral implications that flow out of this reality for us as being the temple. So many. I'll just ask some rhetorical questions and, and let the Spirit of God do His work in you and in me and in us together. Are we the church dwelling in unity? That's one of Paul's big concerns in 1 Corinthians 3 as he's calling the church together as the temple of God. We saw it in Psalm 122. The tribes are going up to Jerusalem to be together, to be in unity. Are we the church dwelling in unity? We sang about it tonight. Is worship central to our identity and purpose? Are we known to be a place where true justice is administered or at least aimed for, sought after? Are we glorifying God with our bodies? That's the third horizon of temple language. It refers to the people of Jesus, together corporately and individually. I'm not suggesting by those rhetorical questions, by the way, that, that we're failing or that we've, we're perfectly succeeding. I'm just asking ourselves the questions. We need to ask those hard questions of ourselves and let God lead us as we discern. So finally, horizon number four. You'd think, perhaps, where else can this go? <laughs> like, we've, we've covered some ground. Where else can this go? But it does, it goes further. It continues to escalate these themes of the temple in Jerusalem. There's one more horizon to see. And it's, it's one that, it's, it's another horizon, but it's also one that kind of fuses together horizons two and three with just orient, being oriented to the future. And so, rather than try to explain it, let's just see it. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. This is where all history is headed for God's people. Revelation 21. There John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, tabernacle. Same word and same idea we saw in John chapter 1. Behold, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle, is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall, shall, shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then skip down to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And what did he show him? He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then finally, Skip down to verse 22, where he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So in this final horizon, horizon number four, even Jerusalem is now identified with the people of God. Not just temple language anymore, but even the very word Jerusalem itself is identified as the people of God. More specifically, the wife of the Lamb, the bride, the church. Did you catch that back in verse 9? When he says, uh, come I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and then what he sees is the holy city, Jerusalem. They're identified as one and the same. And in the new creation, there will be no physical temple because the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, is its temple. This is where it's all headed. Shadows give way to substance. The old gives way to the new. Promise gives way to fulfillment. Signposts give way to the destination. A place, not merely without pain, no more crying, no more tears, and no more death, as amazing as all of that is and completely infathomable for us right now. That's amazing stuff. And it is right to long for that. But the glory of the new creation is more than just the absence of evil, pain, and suffering. It is the presence of God Almighty in all His glory, with all His people, under His peaceful and just rule. As in His presence, where according to Psalm 16, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Not just absence, but also presence. If the earthly city of Jerusalem and the physical temple prompted such adoration and praise as we see in Psalm 122, 
If the earthly city of Jerusalem and the physical temple prompted such an adoration and praise, how much more the full realization of the meaning of those signposts in the new creation. Life for us now as Christians is oriented to and also shaped by that future. For example, Jesus taught us to to pray now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to just put that in the language of Psalm 122, we could say this. We enjoy the foretaste of gladness in the Lord now. And we desire more and more, knowing that full satisfaction is coming. So yes, like the psalmist, let us delight ourselves in the Lord. Let us be glad in being in Christ and being together with those who are also in Christ. Let us be glad in the fellowship of His body, the true temple. Yes. We also, the other side of the psalm, we also earnestly pray for one another now. We pray that we would be a community of peace. We pray that we would be a fountain overflowing into this broken world with love and justice being a signpost ourselves to the world of the ultimate peace and justice to come for all who embrace Jesus as their Savior and Lord and delight. And let us do so more and more. Let's continue to pray toward that end. So, satisfaction and supplication. We've got the gladness of the psalmist and going to the house of the Lord and we got his prayer for the peace of Jerusalem. Satisfaction, supplication, grounded in and oriented to the glory of the Lord. The glory of the one who is the true temple. So I was glad when Let's pray. Father, thank you for just this time to be together this evening. For our our time in, in singing your praises together. How good it is when we dwell together in unity. Worshiping your name. So thankful for uh, the time that we were able to hear from Vasil. So thankful for the time to sit under your word. Father, make us increasingly glad at the prospect of fellowship with you in the reality of being in Christ and at the the prospect of being together with your people, the fellowship of your body. Make us glad, Lord, increasingly more and more. Give us Real tastes now of 
your goodness. Help us long for the full satisfaction that is to come. And Lord, may we be a people characterized by peace and justice and love. And may you so work in us as a church that we overflow like a fountain into this broken world with love and justice and peace. And at the tip of all of that, the gospel. We ask you to do it, Lord, far more abundantly than we can ask or think. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.